0: What's up, guys? It's Matt here, episode number 56 of Fit of Food Radio. I'm, of course, here with the amazing Keris. Hello. Hello. As always, Uh, no change there. Guys, amazing episode coming up. I know I say this every week, but, you know, we're just not short of amazing episodes. And we've got a fantastic guest on the show today who happens to be a doctor, um, a primal doctor, as it goes, Um, no that doesn't mean he lives in a cave and hunts his own food or we might actually we'll find out in a minute we actually found out about this guy through eucharist didn't we (laughs)
1: <laughs> indeed yeah so I came across uh, so we're going to introduce you in a second Tommy but it's Dr Tommy Wood <laughs> through um, the website I think is Primal Docs isn't it that you uh, you list on and I was looking for help with a client that I have um, who's currently suffering from heart disease um, and several clients I have who also are on medications and by law I'm not really allowed to talk to them about their medications or advise them on any of that in you know, stopping starting or changing their dose so I've been looking for a GP to work with or a doctor and someone training conventional medicine. And I was very excited to find your details, even more excited to then get on your website and start reading about everything from HIIT training to fish oils to, I think as soon as I was on there, I was on a cardo ordering stuff <laughs> straight away, <laughs> supplements ordered. Uh, so yeah, so, and then found out we have mutual friends as well. So, you know, Rannick, Absolutely. who we've had on the podcast um and yeah I that's couldn't... a great episode Alice. so yeah so that's how we came it was, it was from...
0: quite amazing to know that you listened to our podcast because it was like no way listen to our podcast <laughs> yeah.
1: really what have we got to say i think we've actually even debated on the same facebook post and i hadn't realized it was you
2: oh the yeah thing. it's usually, <laughs> usually Ranick gets angry about something yeah, um, yeah. and then tags us in it and then
1: um, <laughs>
2: yeah a... so we kind of
1: yeah, I think I'm going to call him ranting Rannock now because it is. Yeah. I like it because he really. I can get carried away with stuff, but he always brings me right back down to
2: earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. He is, you know, one of the best bullshit meters out there. I think.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but Tommy, uh, just to clarify, mate, you're not a country singer as well, are you?
2: No, okay, no you can google. Like I have it, I do have some videos on YouTube and stuff, like that, but if you Google Tommy Wood YouTube, you will find a country
0: singer first. And that is so that's what I, I thought, I'd, you know, we'd best do a bit of research. So, Google Tommy Wood, Tommy Wood country singer. Um, so I think it's important to put the doctor beforehand, or uh, what I did put in the end was Tommy Wood primal doctor, and then de- there you was oh, yeah. Uh, but Tommy, so why don't you kind of like tell our listeners who you are and what being a primal doctor is exactly and, you know, and what you're kind of working on at the moment.
2: I grew up in the UK, in Bristol. I'm currently in Norway at the moment, doing my PhD, which I'll talk about a little bit in a second. Um, but I did I did a degree in biochemistry first, and then I went to medical school. During both those times, I, so I started rowing during my first degree, you know, I, I'd been kind of a... I'd been a rather slovenly teenager, let's put it that way. So, you know, I spent a lot of time reading books and watching TV and not really doing much else. In my uh, gap year, I sort of put my geeky tendencies towards the gym and nutrition and and things like Mm -hmm. that. And then as I started to to, to row at Cambridge, I just sort of, all of that sort of started to fall together and and I started to coach a little bit more. And as my sort of rowing career tailed off towards the end of my medical degree, I I did, Spent my time coaching actually, and during that time I spent more and more time reading and just looking at stuff. And originally found CrossFit maybe ten years ago, and through CrossFit you know was just trying to look at new ways to train people and found the Paleo diet through that. Not really much happened with that. I kind of dabbled with the paleo side of things but never really got too serious about it um i mainly you know i was rowing a huge amount and later i did you know endurance marathons and you know some powerlifting and stuff and it didn't really matter what i ate i was training so much so i kind of just got away with whatever was going getting into my mouth um the last year of my medical degree and then science work as a junior doctor in london stepbrother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis we sort of as a, as a family my, my stepdad and and, and my stepbrother are, are engineers, and you know what engineers are really good at is that you know trying to find a, a practical solution to a problem. So what we did is we, we sifted through thousand plus scientific references, like doctors, journals, all these people who treated multiple sclerosis. We were like, okay, there's got to be something in here other than these toxic drugs. And they are, I, I only say they're toxic because some of them do have some really nasty side effects uh, that, that you give people uh, with multiple sclerosis. And we built this huge kind of, we call it a we do systems analysis. So we build this big system. We look at all the, the possible things that could feed into multiple sclerosis symptoms and, and progression. And, and one of the really important things that come in it is diet. And it's something that's not really talked about enough, but it's sort of coming to the fore. You know, Terry Walls is really big now, and she um, promotes a, obviously like a paleo-style diet. And, you know, we found loads of evidence behind this and sort of sort of looked at the ways that these kind of dietary factors can interact with the disease and that's what sort of brought me back to paleo. I hadn't really done much with it for a couple of years, but that sort of started to get me interested in it again and see sort of like the potential power of it. Um, and then things like uh, the Paleo Physicians Network, which isn't really going that much now, and, and Primal Docs started up. and I just signed up. Um, I just qualified as a doctor. I didn't really have a, you know, I was working in central London, but I was working in a hospital. I didn't really have any, no private practice or, or, or didn't really take any patients. But I was like, if anybody wants to ask me stuff, I'm happy to share You know, share my my knowledge with them. You know, so I didn't charge anything. If people emailed me, I'd be happy to sort of just say, I can't be your doctor, but you know, read this or this is what I think or whatever.
1: That's amazing. Um, There's not many people that do that (laughs) in this day (laughs) and age.
2: Yeah, well, I just kind of figured that i would learned enough to at least point people in the right direction. And you know, I I feel like there's loads and loads of good scientific evidence out there, which which people aren't talking about in like the traditional medical sphere. And you know, and all my. Oh,
1: really? Interesting.
2: I think that's just. Based on the training we've got and what they know and their specialties, I I don't really blame them. They don't have time to to do the reading that I do. And that's really expanded since I started my PhD two years ago. So I moved over to Norway. um, And in my spare time, just because I know I now, rather than run around a hospital all night, I now get to sit in front of a computer all day. So it's terrible for my posture. Um, (laughs) But it means I get access to a lot of scientific journals. So in the last couple of years, I've been, I started writing my blog. Um, I've done a few talks, um, start a podcast with my friend Chloe who runs Paleo Britain, and it's just kind of just kind of gone from there. So I do have, like you say, a, a few clients, and I can't be anybody's. I can't be anybody's direct doctor, but I'm happy to uh, you know sort of help people wade through some of the differences in opinion you know in in say like the nutritional areas in terms of disease or you know materials they can go to take and discuss with their gp about about you know different options and and things like that and that's that's sort of in terms of my function as a primal doctor that's that's kind of what i do
0: awesome so you you're pretty clever bloke then (laughs)
2: <laughs> well i like to think so
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, ju- judging by what i've read in a very short space of time of your work and on your site it all looks absolutely awesome um we can uh you know at the end we'll get you to share your website and everything else but it does look fantastic and it's quite nice to see a doctor kind of speaking about things that aren't just about necessarily medicine and and and, and health per se and going beyond that and talking about nutrition training etcetera, etc etc cetera. A few questions. We did email over you a ton of questions. We'll do our best to uh, get through what we can. Um, but you mentioned obviously the, the paleo diet um, yep. and kind of you, you dabbled with it, went away from it, came back to it a little bit. The kind of word paleo these days, I'm sure you'll agree, uh, you could ask 20 different people what paleo is and you'd probably get 20 different answers. Um, And I've always kind of, my view is um, that that we're so far removed from the Paleolithic era that people keep going on about, that it's almost near impossible to be completely Paleo per se, and we can only do what we can in the, you know, kind of current circumstances. So how would you say that the the Paleo diet kind of has evolved over the years?
2: The Paleo diet, in case, you know, I'm sure many people know, kind of stemmed from a paper written by uh, Boyd Eaton in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1985, and they kind of described what they thought. or well, they used modern hunter-gatherer diets and, and uh, a bit of it, evidence from like the evolutionary record to kind of put together what they thought we ate as we evolved. And they and they talked about it as being a paleolithic diet. And um, but but what people call paleo now, even though it's very varied, is actually very different to what they what they described. They talked about you know no sodium fat. So the people who love bacon are really going to be upset about that. Ooh. Um, you know, actually a, a fairly high carbohydrate diet, maybe 30 to 40% carbs, you know, and a lot of people associated with being on the lower carb end of things, you know, some roots and legumes, you know, beans and things, you know, if, if, if we could find them, we'd eat them, which is understandable really. Um, and then it kind of evolved through Lauren Cordain who, 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 made it much stricter. And he talks about, you know, no dairy, no legumes, just nuts and seeds and a small amount of fruit and a small amount of starch and then, you know, meat. And then it's kind of evolved even further. So, you know, like paleo 2.0 or primal, and then things start to come back. So high-quality dairy is coming back. Some people talk about, you know, beans and uh, other legumes, lentils and things like that coming back. And I kind of feel like, feel, I feel like it, it's really beneficial that we've started to actually – so what, what, we, what we started out as was a nice framework. You know, it was like we're sick. It's partly because of what we're eating. This is what we think we were eating then, so maybe we should try and replicate that. The problem is that the paleo has this huge image problem. You know, so everybody thinks that we're just trying to sit in caves and eat steak the whole time. <laughs> um, and, and if anybody's has anybody seen that um, TED talk by that professor called Christina Warriner from Harvard. She writes this: she does a TED talk called Debunking the Paleo Diet. Yeah, and basically it, it does just yeah. that, it just talks about how we're not cavemen, you know, we shouldn't sit in caves and eat steak all day. And I completely agree with her. But when she goes and says, what well, we should eat, <coughs> actually, she talks about seasonal food, um, eating lots of vegetables, you know, eating local, um, you know, eating what we've got available, you know, a, a wide variety of foods. I'm like, well, <coughs> that sounds like paleo to me. So you've yeah. just gone full circle, really. What What's kind of happened is that on the flip side of that, even though we've looked at the science and decided, well, maybe it's good to get our own nutrients from something like high-quality dairy, or maybe legumes aren't actually that bad. But then, you know, once you open that up, then there's a lot of um, a lot more scope for misinterpretation. I don't care whatever anybody says. You take a roasted sweet potato and you cover it in grass-fed butter. That stuff's basically like cheesecake. You know, the body—it's no—it's no different. You know. Absolutely enjoy it as it were cheesecake, but don't, you can't kid yourself and think that sweet potatoes and grass-fed butter all day is, is going to be that good for you, really. So we're evolving with the times, uh, which is really, really good. But but the, the big thing about paleo, to me, is the fact that it's become more than about food. And I think that's where people really start to see the benefits. So we're talking about, um, you know, provides community. There's a big online paleo community. There's big sort of social aspects of, of paleo. You know, we talk, talk about stress and sleep and, and movement and, you know, just actually connecting with the food that goes into your mouth in the first place. So I think as paleo has really expanded over the last five years to include all that stuff, the name doesn't mean anything anymore. It's mm. nothing to do with paleo. we just kind of co-opted all those things yeah. into it. That's what I really, that's what I think is really good. And different parts of that will, will be useful and beneficial to different people so we can kind of adapt it. So then anybody who's a purist or anybody who's trying to debunk paleo can easily say, well, this is nonsense, this has got nothing to do with paleo. But actually, if you're part of the paleo community, you realise that we know that's nonsense and we've accepted that anyway, but we're just sort of trying to get back to, to, to all the stuff that we should be doing, like eating real food. And-
1: it's, it's like, um, I always say to Matt, I feel like, in in a way just being we're both personal trainers and nutritionists it's like you go around in circles so new things come in and you get a bit carried away with them and you think this is it this is the solution we're gonna gonna solve all the world's problems and then you you know you just realize it's just part of the bigger picture and for us what we we said I think with paleo I think it's a little bit of a journey for everyone just because it's really just coming off processed foods and you know just trying to learn a bit more about nutrition and not being scared of fats and things but I know with my journey I think I've just just about done a full circle back to almost I used to be vegetarian and pescatarian for a while and now I'm I'm sort of a a paleo pesca vegetarian it's like you know you take the best bits of it but what was your what's your sort of personal approach to paleo now is there anything where you think oh you I still believe people should strictly avoid this or are you quite sort of
2: absolutely not actually because I don't think that the evidence supports that um and I used to be really I was you know two or three years ago I was you know if I was behind paleo I was behind the full or you know original grains Mm -hmm. are bad for everybody but actually I I don't really think that we have the evidence to support that you know I know Mark Sisson says that on some level everybody is intolerant of grains but I don't think that we really have the evidence to really support that Um, and I'm not saying that everybody should you know smash back loads of grains I don't think there's that much (laughs) use to them in the body I also don't think that, you know, maybe 80, 90% of people probably don't have that, that much of an issue with them. And it really, so it really depends on what the, the person's problem is, fat or, you know, diseases. So if autoimmune disease or a neurological disease real benefit from the original strict paleo guidelines because grains and dairy particularly can be a, can be a big problem there. And maybe even something like an autoimmune protocol is worth trying and then reintroducing foods later. If you're, you know, have some metabolic problems, you know, getting, you know, getting away from all those processed carbs, getting away from all those foods that are really easy to overeat. That's the real benefit there. So it's, you know, nobody got diabetes by eating lentils. Um, it's, (laughs) it's by, you know, it's, it's removing all those, all those processed foods and all that easily accessible carbohydrate, particularly for people with insulin resistance. Um, or, you know, if people have have been in that chronic undereating state, you know, you know, those poor women who are told to eat 1200 calories a day and it's just like absolute misery and the body shuts down. You know, if you start to just focus on, quality of food rather Mm. than quantity of food then you see huge benefits there and you know weight drops off people despite the fact that they you know twice as many calories so i I think you can use paleo to kind of or you don't even need to use the phrase paleo at all and you can kind of you can kind of adjust based on 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 what the issue is
0: do you not think as well though because when it does come to grains it's a lot of people that you've met and i i used to be the same exactly the same i never just ate a few I ate a lot, you know, I'd have toast at breakfast, sandwiches at lunch, pasta at dinner. I might even sometimes, you know, whatever my dinner, dinner is, have some bread and butter to dunk in whatever I've got. So yeah. there was there, there was hardly... It's
1: making me shudder. <laughs> no, but
0: I, I, think, I think a lot of people are like that. So grains have kind of got a bad name, not because they're grains, but more so because people just ate so much of it. No wonder things started going kind of crazy for them. Whereas you know personally if I have the odd bit of toast I'm absolutely fine but a lot of people that we work with if they've kind of you know we get the classic message of like oh I went off off the rails at the weekend it all started when I had toast at breakfast and then I just thought sod it and then I had a pasta lunch and a bacon baguette (laughs) mid-afternoon whatever and it kind of just spirals out of control and they feel like crap on the Monday whereas if they could kind of you know get a bit of a uh, moderation in place and maybe just stop at a couple of slices of toast with breakfast, maybe they wouldn't have felt so damn bad.
2: But then I guess the the, the problem is, because it, it forms the basis of like every, you know, every sort of food that you can just easily reach for. I think that's kind of, and, and especially if, especially if you're not used to or you haven't fully adapted to whatever new way of eating you come to any kind of processed carbohydrate-based meal is going to put you on that blood sugar and insulin roller coaster and then you just want to like grab another sandwich or grab more toast and it's kind right. of like a, a self for putting prophecy like you're saying
1: yeah i'm glad you said that because um I, I when i'm working with clients there are some who sort of say that they they like to have a free meal and I have to go through a little bit of a, hmm, I, I really don't know that this is actually going to work for you. And you don't want to cause them, you know, sort of issues with food and orthorexia and becoming obsessed with about it. But for some of them, I know that their insulin health isn't ready for that sort of blowout okay. at the weekend. And we do some courses Within the industry, where they're quite big on cheat meals and cheat days, and they say for compliance, you know, you have to let clients have these cheat Mm. days. And I've always been a bit like, I I I do understand that, and for maybe some some personal trainers who have got all their ducks in a row and feel that they're quite, you know, it 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 does. It
0: depends. Like 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 Tommy said, it kind of I think it depends where they are at on their journey. But then equally, equally, I think sometimes people almost to almost realise that actually they, they feel like crap the next yeah. and then yeah, make yeah, them yeah. not that's want true. to do it again, you know.
1: What's your take on them? Have you seen the flexible dieting model that's out there? Have you seen much yeah, of Yeah, so like
2: if it fits your macros, yeah. that kind yeah. of thing. particular diet is really pushed by young guys who spend a lot of time in the gym. And if you are a young, fit guy who spends a lot of time in the gym, I've been there. You can eat whatever you like, actually. Yeah. And, and <laughs> so then it's very easy for you to say, look, I just made sure I did loads of squats, and then I could eat as many cheeseburgers as I like. But then, when you're actually applying it to somebody who has, maybe they have some issues with their, you know, or they have some emotional issues with food, or they have you know, some problems with their metabolic health, then it's very, very difficult to put that model into place. And I think part of the problem is that if, as soon as you talk about cheat meals, you already put it put it into a negative light, right? Because then. You're denying yourself the rest of the time, and then you have to start cheating on it. So actually, it just requires you to, you know, it it just it just already puts that food in in, in a bad light, and and it's just going to worsen whatever whatever you know potential issues you have with your food intake in terms of whether you know it's emotional eating or under or overeating you automatically kind of put it back into into that system. You know, there there is good evidence for like long-term weight loss if people are on like a calorie-restricted type plan, you know, where you calorie restrict for one or two weeks and then you have two or three days where you eat whatever you like. Those guys have a much more sustained weight loss um, than people who who just continuously calorie restrict because you need that food to to get the metabolism back going. So for some people, if that's the, the model that works for them, then I completely understand and there's good evidence for that. And some people need that kind of, they work really hard all week and they just eat steak and salad you know they want to have a pizza on Sunday night and and if it just is that you know one thing and, and it works for them then I understand that too but it's it it becomes that really slippery slope because because mm-hmm. somebody says well I had this one bad thing so then the whole day is ruined so then I can just so it, mm-hmm. I, I think you know and this if the sicker you are I think the stricter you have to be and then and then as you as you start to get yourself you know back into better health then i you're, you're allowed more flexibility so it really depends from
1: person to person so when was the last time you had a pizza
2: oh a pizza <laughs>
0: <laughs> or a cheat meal I'm
2: not meal. sure but la- last night I had a burger um, with bread and sweet potato fries so so not with bread no with with actual uh, oh bread. with no. with, <laughs> with, <laughs> with, <laughs> with with gluten and everything you, you
0: seem to you've got a massive smile on your face right now <laughs> I, I, I take it, it was the a good burger <laughs>
2: My girlfriend's been living with me in Norway for the last month and, and she went home today. So it was kind of our last meal together.
1: So uh, we, it. we went out for a burger.
2: We enjoyed it. And uh, it was completely worth it.
1: Good man. So is, is she paleo as well? Is she sort of like influenced um, by only, you?
2: Or? Only because I forced her to about
1: it? Just on visits. Sounds like me and Karis. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah so, so she, I mean, she was like a, a national level athlete. Um, oh, wow as you know up, up until her early 20s and you know she was exactly she could train she was training so hard she could eat whatever she likes and you know she's always eat, eating fairly well but then apparently as soon as you start talking to me about this stuff then you become paranoid about everything you eat which is absolutely not how i feel about things <laughs> yeah I feel like i'll you know i'll i'll comment on their food or whatever but she yeah. she's more paleo because
1: she's with me i was gonna say do you, do you think um... <laughs> whether she's happy
0: i bet i bet she's gone like straight to chipotle macky d's <laughs> and all of them as soon as she got back in the states
2: well, last time i heard from her she was buying bailey's chocolates in uh heathrow jukies so.
0: nice. <laughs> See, i'm a bit like that as soon as like if keris goes out for the day i just go crazy <laughs> she doesn't need to know
1: and um, i was just gonna ask do you think um they should uh, we often talk a little bit about how I think paleo should differ a little bit between men and women. And that's just uh, mainly based off my, my own uh, journey with it. And also working with a lot of women online. And um, when we were personal training, I just noticed that women, when I try and eat like Matt anyway, it all goes horrifically wrong. And, I, you know, I don't want to look like Matt. So basically I don't eat like him, but I noticed that he seems to get away with or feel really good eating a, a heavy meat diet. And I always felt better, better eating fish. And that's sort of the way that we've gone. Um, do you think? And I always put it down to things like omega threes and hormones and women's digestive systems. I just think are a little bit more delicate. Do you do you see similar things or?
2: So there's absolutely, in terms of omega threes and dopamine production, particularly um, in line with the menstrual cycle. I think that's you know that's very important and. and because of the changes in estrogen and, and how that changes dopamine production if you're deficient in something like vitamin D or omega 3s uh, as a woman in certain times of your cycle then that could really cause some some mood, some mood changes and that's probably part of the reason why I would get something PMS whatever you want you want to call it
1: yeah. <laughs> um, oh
2: <wow. laughs> I I'm get myself in trouble there um, I obviously don't know about you and your relationship Karis, but I know that there's still some no- negative connotations with you know a, a high meat diet and I think there are some risks with a high red meat diet, which maybe we'll talk about later, which a lot of people in the paleo community are potentially ignoring. But I feel like anything that has more of a negative connotation. So women, women have have a much more emotional relationship with food than men do in general. And mm. that, That's absolute generalization. So as soon as there's kind of like a any kind of negative connotation that people start to pull away from that, I'm this big, I'm this big <laughs> guy. I can eat as much steak as I like. Um, so, so I think. I think so like you say, the nutritional aspect is, is very important but I think it's also partly the, the emotional aspect and and how we kind of see various foods at the moment because of whatever publicity or or, or science there is out there so so my
1: that's awesome you no know, I would probably agree with that because I I did go back and forth a lot when I first came across paleo I would just read the science over and over again almost trying to convince myself that I had to undo 30 years of being told fat was bad for you and you know decrease um meat intake and i studied at um, the college of naturopathic medicine which is run by vegans so i also yes. had like that I've always been told they've actually had to revise all the lectures because it was very influenced by that 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 vegan approach um yeah. so i think but it was good for me because it meant i always had to keep going back and visiting the science and i was like no okay i feel better about the amount of meat that he eats, but I want you to talk to him about how he cooks his meat because <laughs> like, that—I mean—that's thats basically what the science is suggesting. We need to be a bit careful about, isn't it?
2: So, for the listeners, I got this long list of questions, and one of them basically said, "Tommy, please tell Matt to stop overcooking his meat." It was pretty. Much <laughs> <funny>. <laughs> the subtext was that Keris is worried about Matt's colon, so <laughs> <all about laughs> how he cooks his meat. So so yes yeah so if you if you expose meat to a high temperature you produce things like heterocyclic amines which are oh, oh, sorry sorry
0: tommy you're breaking up sorry yeah
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so heterocyclic amines which are basically a reaction between the amino acids and the sugar in in meat or poly uh, mm. polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons which are which are come from a combination of the fats and the amino acids and when they're burned at high temperature And it's usually, if you're cooking something over about 300 degrees Celsius, which includes a very hot frying pan or a barbecue. Um, And then another problem comes into play if you've got something like processed meats. And because they contain nitrites as preservatives, what can then happen is when those are exposed to high temperatures, then nitrites can react with amino acids, obviously, in the protein Mm -hmm. of the meat, and they create something in nitroso compounds. And all of those... um, can be are associated with oxidative damage, um, an increased risk of colon cancer, uh, potentially increased just general inflammatory risk because they can increase things called advanced glycation end products, um, which people talk about a lot to do with, you know, very high blood sugar levels. So the, the glucose in the blood can can alter the proteins and has a whole signaling cascade which, which, which causes sort of an inflammatory process. So there is, so there is a risk there and, and, and I think we need to accept that. But if you marinate your meat, you can dramatically reduce the production of those compounds. Um, so, olive oil, acids, wine, beer, lemon juice, vinegar, um, rosemary, uh, turmeric, garlic,
1: or the other. Uh, all all, the, all the men listening just heard. So, if I put beer on my steak, it's fine. That's all they hear. They're not listening to the rest of it. That's exactly why I said, so, so "Soak your steak in beer." That's
0: what if you just had a mouthful of beer after every mouthful of steak?
2: No. Uh, <laughs> because it's got to interfere got to interfere with the production of, of of the compounds in the first place. Um so so marinades uh, before high temperature cooking really reduce really reduce those effects, maybe like 70, 80, 90 percent. Oh wow. Oh, that's amazing. And 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 then another thing is um, so the um, allium compounds from um, there there's some evidence that they neutral colon cancer. So if you have some some onions on your burger, again, that there's some potential. It's not a huge amount of evidence, but you know. Um, <laughs> so, so what? So, what I think is that if frying your steaks at high temperatures every single night, um, and you're marinating them, and you know you're getting yourself a nice steak and you're enjoying it, um, what I think is a is a potential problem is the the, the
1: iron <coughs> though. Oh, we spoke about this last night. Actually, I was saying I think Matt needs to give blood more regularly
2: yeah so mm. absolutely
0: and it, i give it as regularly really as i mean. can no i'm just saying about the blood thing i do i do try and give blood uh, every um yeah there's
1: limits 12, isn't there
0: every 12 it's 12 weeks isn't it yeah you, yeah i yeah.
2: think in the uk it's 12 weeks yeah but basically what happens is and it often it happens less in women because they they lose some iron every month at least until menopause um but in men particularly once they get into their 40s and 50s into middle age we tend to see it uh, an, an accumulation of iron and this, this is really severe in something like a, a disease excuse me called hemochromatosis which some people might have heard of and basically the body has there's a mutation and the body accumulates a huge amount of iron and it goes in the liver and causes liver failure goes in the pancreas causes diabetes it goes in the testicles and you don't produce any testosterone but there are much there are milder versions of that and, and the, the middle-aged man is just just tends to accumulate more iron um, and this is a good thing back when we lost a lot of blood, you know, we were out fighting all day or hunting and getting as much iron as possible from your food was important. So you could make more red blood cells and you could replenish the blood that you lost. If you're not losing that blood, then it can cause a, sort of an increased inflammatory load, an increased oxidative stress in the body. Um, so then I, I think if people are eating a high meat diet, which a lot of paleo people are, then literally um, donating blood is a, is a fabulous thing to do. So you can help society. Is good for your health, and, and they've even done studies where they've got people with type 2 diabetes, they measure their blood sugar control before and after giving blood, and it gets better after donating blood oh, wow. because and, oh, nice. and they think That's part amazing. of that is removed some of the oxidative stress from the body.
1: That's awesome. What would be like the first signs of hemochromatosis then for any man here just looking at his iron knackers? <laughs> <laughs>
2: It, it, it will really depend on where on where they're seeing the where the iron is accumulating. Uh, we, you know, it, as one of the nicknames for it is bronze diabetes. So you might actually be um, accumulating in the skin, so you can actually start to see in the skin the skin changes colour. Um, or it might be um, fatigue because you know your testosterone levels are dropping or something like that. One mutation is. Is actually fairly common because it does it provided us an evolutionary advantage in the past. So you know, I would um, if if, if um, guys are getting into their forties and fifties, and you know they eat a lot of meat or they're not donating blood regularly, or even if they are, I think it's worth getting a, a basic um, iron studies test. And you can look at something like your ferritin, and just, just have a look at your total at your total iron load.
1: And just because you mentioned uh, mutations, then what's your thought on um, things like the twenty three and Me the uh, gene test being available on the high street now in i don't know if it's everywhere but it obviously is in uk in the uk
2: i think it's i think it's a it's a really nice idea it, it's great to have that information you know know what you're at risk at know what things you should look out for but the problem is that there's so much over interpretation so so what happens now is you do your 23andme and you put your results into something like genetic gene um and and, and there are a few other ones you can do. You pay like $5 or something and it analyzes the results for you. Because 23andMe aren't allowed to do it anymore because of a problem with the, the FDA they in the US. They were shut down, oh, weren't they?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah so they weren't, allowed to, they weren't allowed to basically give you an analysis of your data. But they can still give you the raw data.
1: <laughs> <Helpful>. and,
2: <laughs> yeah. and so, But then so what happens, and, and, and this, I guess, it's easy to talk about in terms of, you know, everybody talks about, you know, methylation is the big thing. Yeah. Um, so... If you have something like a COMT uh, mutation or an MTHFR mutation, and these are basically mutations that deal with with your methylation and and production of neurotransmitters or or, um, dealing with B vitamins and methylating DNA and and all that kind of stuff. If you have a mutation, somebody will say, here, take this supplement. But the problem is that particularly with, with something like methylation, which people are worried about a lot at the moment, is that what it says in your genes is not necessarily what's going on in the body. So... If you're not looking at, you know, much more specific blood markers or blood testing, suddenly taking some kind of methylated B vitamin supplement or something to do with your histamine, if you're taking extra diamine oxidase or something because you're worried about your histamine regulation, you know, I, I just think it's really, it's based on the basic genetics, it's really easy to overinterpret it. And we're seeing a huge amount of that now, but actually if you, if you really want to know where where the sticking points are, you need much more complicated biochemistry. So it's a good idea in theory. Uh, I think at the moment it's really being abused to sell a lot of unsold
1: that's really, I think one of my issues at the moment is um is the sort of blood work that you can get done. I know it's very limited on on National Health Service, but it doesn't offer a lot of information to people. And, and really, private blood work is is what often needs to be done. Do you think that would ever be changed in the near future? Or I mean, some of the things that are offered are just almost like the B your B vitamin status that. You're offered by a GP is, is pretty much useless, really, isn't it?
2: Yeah, if you're doing something like B12 and folate, you know, you can be taking some really crappy B12 supplement that's not really doing you any good, uh, and it will increase your B12 on your blood chemistry, but in reality, you have no idea if it's actually useful for your biochemistry at all. Um, I think the I think the basic testing... I think you can do a lot with the basic testing. I really... I'm not sure it's really going to change unless our model of healthcare changes. So yeah. in, in the US, you can go and you can order yourself a very extensive, you know, you can any test you like, as long as you're willing to pay for it. I, I think now you don't even need a doctor to order it for you. And again, there's a risk of, of sort of going down the rabbit hole and over-interpreting things. We're just, a, we're, we're at a point where uh, in the UK, because we're used to getting everything for free as part of the NHS then suddenly have to pay for our own private blood tests, it feels like an affront to us because, you know, we should be getting our healthcare free. And I think there's kind of, I think there's kind of a, a balance to be had there. So, you know, if you're worried about something specific, then maybe it is worth, you know, in the long run, it's, it's worth your investment to pay for it. Yeah. Um, because I think it's, it's going to be, unless our model of healthcare changes where we suddenly have a very, you know, access to, a you know, is privatized and and all that stuff starts to come in, like more like a US model. Then you know that stuff's going to take a long time to, ch- to change because those more complicated markers aren't part of the te- aren't part of the education that doctors get. They're not part of standard care. They're not part of standard treatment. So they, and they cost a lot of money. So yeah. GPs don't have don't have the budget to pay for them. So then if you want that kind of thing, uh, it's going to have to come out of your own pocket.
1: I think they're building up to it because I had a client recently ask for a printout of their blood test, and they got charged ten p a sheet. So they're building really up mean. to it
2: they're, they're gradually
1: bringing that, in <laughs> that's
2: like that's like when you used to go down the newsagents to, to get a black and white photocopy it was 10 yeah. 10p a page wasn't it yeah. when i was a kid i remember
0: that I can't believe <laughs> <laughs> at, at what stage though would you recommend someone does have some form of testing because what we're finding is that like you say people are so keen to you know somewhat self-diagnose with what they read on the internet and we 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 meet people that are willing to just throw hundreds of pounds at tests because they want to find out x y and z haven't even dedicated say 30 days to
1: sleeping more. you know just
0: focusing more on sleeping more cleaning their act up with their nutrition moving a little bit more people are so quick to try and jump the gun because i suppose on the flip side of people paying for something they almost expect a better result because they've paid quite a lot of money for it as opposed to just going back to the basics, getting their nutrition, tidied up a little bit, moving a little bit more and then seeing how they feel before, you know, going into a test. How would you approach someone, you know, at what stage would you say, I think you need to get some testing
2: done? I I absolutely understand that people come into it and they're like, right, all that other stuff is nonsense. I want to get the test done. I want to change everything. The, The basic lifestyle stuff, real food, sleep, Stress management, movement—you know, avoiding artificial light—you know, all that really, really basic stuff that nobody really does properly. You know, going for a walk every day. Eighty or ninety percent of people where they want to go, mm. and they don't need to spend any more money. Well, we talked briefly before we started recording. I work with a guy called um, Chris Kelly. He's a functional diagnostic nutritionist in California, uh, but we we do some work with with clients together, and I help them consult on, on and, and actually looking at blood tests and interpreting blood tests is, is what I do do with him. Um, and but he'll even say you know he's worked with hundreds of people and he has you know a huge amount of experience sort of looking at tests and he can he can basically now a client can give him can give him the symptoms they're still having and he'll know that he'll see it on the biochemistry so he doesn't even need the biochemistry in the end and he knows the reason largely and often they have very you know people have complicated problems that take more digging or take specific supplements or take a certain you know antimicrobial treatment program or something but you know, nine times out of ten, if the person isn't seeing results, it's because they haven't actually just given the time to eat properly and and, and move and sleep and, and all that stuff. So if if somebody hasn't you know put that put, put that time in first, like I kind of feel like they're, they're not wasting their money because it's always useful information to have. But it, it, that money can add up really quickly. So mm-hmm. you know, your time is the best best I think. And and then then if you're still struggling, absolutely, then it's worth having a bit of a d- deeper dig.
0: I like it when people agree with us. <laughs> 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 uh,
1: hey, sorry, you just—you just reminded me because recently I've been waking in the night, and I was saying to Matt, "I'm like, I do that typical thing of maybe I'm having you know too much caffeine in the day. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that." And do you wanna, I know exactly what it is. It's that I don't switch off early enough at night, so my mind is still going. So if I could just, when I get a sleep routine in place, I sleep so much better, longer, <clears throat> I, and I'm waking. I'm, I'm actually dreaming about recipes and work and webinars so i know it's work but it's like buzzing me at, at night and that's affecting sleep but it's just you sometimes need to be reminded don't you
2: you know and you can do all this so i have like f flux on my computer so it goes orange and i get rid yeah. of the blue light blue light blockers but i mean in reality you know an hour or two before bed you should just just switch off and yeah. read a book or you know if you've got somebody in bed with you there's other stuff you could be doing so um uh <laughs> so, oops, rubs um so Football. you know facebook at that point it's not an important thing to you so yeah. i think i think people just you know just give yourself that time to switch off and and there's um you know there's there's been some some really good studies where um if people are forced to turn all their lights off or just have candlelight say after actual genuine sundown you know They sleep so much better, and then their sleep sleep is, after a couple of weeks, their sleep splits, so they'll wake up in the middle of the night, and they'll read or do something else, and then go back to sleep for a couple of hours. And I know we don't all have, like, people don't have the the luxury of time to do that, Um, but, you know, if you are getting rid of all those things, and you are letting your circadian rhythms take over again, um, then your sleep will come back. Um,
0: To give a bit of insight as well, though, because obviously we are a couple, we live together. Um, you know, and Keris is talking about like not switching off from work, etc. And for us, we've noticed that it's so important that our routines are in sync because if, for example, you know, yeah. I'm ready to switch off, but Keris is still working or vice versa, then it almost it carries over to the other person and the other person can't quite relax when the other person's tapping away on a computer or... yeah reading an email that's then stressed them out. And then, of course, you know, we'll tell each other about it and that stresses the other one out and it has a knock-on effect. And it's probably the biggest barrier we have, so so to speak, isn't it? With yeah. When we work with clients and how more difficult it is when their partner isn't on board in some way, yeah. you know, be it with the nutrition, the training, the whole lifestyle approach, etc., etc. And and even us, you know, people that have, you know, been doing been on this journey for some time now and kind of like worked out what does and doesn't work for us, like that's one of the the biggest things with us still, isn't it? that you know, when one's really switched off and the other one isn't, and then that causes tension and we're a bit like yeah. you know.
1: You yeah, know. I was gonna say, do you do you try and influence like friends and family gently or or do you have you 'cause I I mean I'm sure if you're anything like us, you start singing singing the pain yeah. of the song really loudly and annoy everyone and then just <laughs> back off a little bit.
2: So I'm, I'm, in reality, I'm a big fan of people sort of coming into themselves. So it's, it's the same, like, if you can't care about it or whatever it is, you can't care about it more than, if you want to help, say, a spouse if they're having any issues or a partner, you can't care about it more than they do because you're, you're just going to infuriate them mm. and, then, and then they're, they're just going to switch off and not listen to you. And it's the same with any person. So like I said earlier, people always assume that I'm going to judge what they eat or judge how yeah. they sleep or just, and, and genuinely I don't, you know, if, if they ask me my opinion, I'll probably talk for hours about whatever it is they've asked. <laughs> but until they're actually, you know, until they ask me, um, I, I, don't really feel like it's worth pushing it because people know that I, I'm really geeky about this stuff and I read a lot of this stuff. So if they're interested in it, um, then I'm very happy to talk to them about it. I think that's the only way you can do it. You know, you have your knowledge, you try and adjust your lifestyle accordingly. If people see benefits that you then you know, achieve or receive because of that, then maybe they become a bit more interested and you can tell them more about it. That's that's how I approach it. Do
0: you know what? I
2: try, oh, I try to. I try to. Maybe i talk about all this stuff. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, all your friends so, are listening to this going, yeah,
2: what? are you yeah.
0: talking about?
2: You literally won't shut
0: up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I 100% agree, though. I, I think that, if anything, I found, especially more so in recent years that it's actually the people that aren't you know following a a healthy routine whatever who who probably judge and give people more grief that are making better decisions or occasionally i mean it's hilarious i find when if i might put up that i'm having a tub of ice cream you know which happens you know from time to time got like the paleo police come out and they just go crazy and and i'm a bit like well if 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 you don't want to be judged by people that eat pretty well most of the time, then it's then what the hell gives you the right to then give us grief if we do decide to have a, a, a treat occasionally, which we do, yeah. and most people do.
2: Absolutely, I, I think there's well part of that problem is the kind of armchair police or whatever you want to call it. You know, because you because you're sat behind a computer screen, you can just sort of yell abuse at people, and, and there's no there's no consequences to that. Um, so I think that's kind of those inhibition, you know, if you, if, if those people were talking to you, Matt, and you're towering over them, you weigh twice what they do, then they probably,
1: <laughs> probably wouldn't
2: say anything. But, you know, when they're behind a keyboard, then they can, then they can sort of, they can give you that sort of chat. And but I think it's also because there's, it's that, co- it's, you know, cognitive dissonance, you know, somebody who, you know, somebody is doing something different to you mm. and it goes against your beliefs, but you kind of wish you could do that. Um, so then you kind of sort of start to jump down their throat and it's just because things aren't lining up with your very rigid viewpoint. And I think that's one of the big problems with paleo is people, people have these super, super rigid viewpoints. Um, and a, we don't have the evidence to support that really rigid viewpoint and B, you know, come on, there's, you know, ice cream is nice, you know, and there's more (laughs) important things to worry about in life right so well, you know just if you're going to have it enjoy it and then move on
0: but that's the thing um, for, for, for me ice cream should be an incredibly pleasurable experience yet you know sometimes you know I might get the odd look of despair and a slight <laughs> shake of the head
1: Well, oh, from,
0: from me well who else
1: <laughs> the dog
0: <laughs> that's only and, it, and it, it has a it has a negative impact on my moment of pleasure
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> Funny thing about uh, <laughs> the, about us too is I think I could get away with way more than Matt, but I don't. I just I don't, like I, I just I like being healthy I, don't, I just don't feel as much. when a it's need
0: really he's a, like? said I'm not healthy.
1: I mean, no, you are. But you're, he's a bit of a woman when it comes to things like ice cream. Like he's always like, oh, I need to have some ice cream and, and watch Gossip Girl, and you know, like he does have that tendency to.
2: Matt, maybe you and I should hang out. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. So, and I always think he does it in times of stress when his body. Like that's the, the you know the last thing his body probably wants at that time is a big yes, giant tub of yes, ice but, cream. But,
2: no, that that's absolutely it. You know, you kind of feel like I I'm really stressed, therefore I deserve ice cream. Yeah, uh, but but equally, if you're gonna have it, oh, just enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. back off. <laughs> We're definitely gonna get you on the
0: show again, but, mate. But it's very easy for people to you know eat it and they feel guilty and then you know you kind of spiral into this kind of you know shame that you ate the mm. ice cream. And, well, it, that's the key, isn't it? And that's a point we try and get across with people. It's that for us, it's not that you can't have these things, it's more that you can't have these things and then just go absolutely loco. And it's kind of, I think, the biggest problem is people having that off switch. So, for example, you know, like you said earlier, if someone does have a tub of ice cream on the Saturday night, like you say, enjoy it, you know, like make the most of that moment. But then the next day, get out, go for a nice walk, have an awesome breakfast to start your day, and just crack on and, and yeah. let bygones be bygones. Whereas most people, it's like, oh, my God, I just yeah, consumed like, 1,200 calories in one sitting. I must yeah, just... Yeah,
2: and then tomorrow I'm going to have to go out for an hour's
1: run to it, burn
2: yeah, it. Yeah. And, yeah. That, like, yeah, absolutely. And eat the ice cream, enjoy it, and continue with your life.
0: Good man.
1: <laughs> I, I like
0: you. You're a good guy. <laughs>
1: I was going to just say, can I, can I get you to put your uh, doctor's hat on again for a second? And I just wanted to ask you about, um, we have loads of people emailing us and I just get lots of clients who come to me on lists of medications and um, often what we're finding increasingly, and this has happened with family as well, so Matt's stepdad is type 2 diabetic and basically more and more things are shutting down in his body and the solution is that you know in terms of conventional medicine is another medication. So blood pressure's gone up, so it's another medication. And um, and the more that I sort of looked into it, the more I'm thinking, oh, my, his his diabetic medication is depleting his B vitamins, which is probably why he's now getting the onset of, you know, well, I think he had heart disease anyway, but now that's progressive, progressively getting worse. And I just wondered if you could um, just talk to, uh, just talk our listeners through, you know, sort of the conventional medicine approach and how preventative medicine is different but also, we're going to get you back on the show um, to talk very specifically about heart disease and type two diabetes and things like that. Um, but maybe just a bit of an insight into um, your, you know, sort of a doctor's opinion on those um, diseases.
2: Yeah, so it's important, you know. I, I don't think anybody's going to take some dude on a podcast and you know, as as like the gospel. But obviously, if, if people shouldn't get medical advice from me on a podcast or, or you guys, but. <laughs> You know, it's absolutely about educating yourself um, through through things like the information that you guys put out there. I think the really important thing to remember is, and, and, and a lot of people come and say, you know, my GP doesn't say nutrition is important in this or that, or, you know, my GP's ignorant or doesn't know this or just keeps putting on medications. And, and I think it's really important to just mention that, you know, your GP is doing a good job. You know, they have seven minutes to see a patient. They have you know, literally no time to read a single yeah. scientific study. And it's and it's not their fault. It's, it's the way that, that our current medical system is structured. And they really, you know, according to the best of their knowledge, they are doing a good job. And a lot of the time they are doing a good job. So I think it's always, always uh, an open, um, interested discussion between you and, and your GP or whatever doctor it is that, you know, you feel you're having an issue with and you feel they're not listening to you. And it might be, I, I feel often people think, you um, yeah, you know, my my GP doesn't know what he's talking about, and then they just storm into the GP's office and they demand something, or they or, you know it immediately yeah. becomes an argument. And then you know, if you come into my office and you tell me I'm not doing my job, job properly, it's very difficult for me to build you know mm-hmm. em, you know empathy and, and yeah. open in a discussion, yeah. right? You know, if people turn up in the gym and say, do you know what, Matt? You haven't got a clue what you're doing. You know, those squats <laughs> are terrible. Um, <laughs> i not, you know, I know I know
1: how to deadlift better than you. Um, you're wasting my time. You're not going to be very open to that. You
2: know, than actually, you know, trying to help that person. I'll be
0: straining ice cream.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I, so, I kind of feel like, based on the system we have, you know, there is a lot more to learn for people and for a lot of doctors, and you just and you just have to, you know, you have to open a line of discussion rather than a, a line of shouting. Um, but you're right. So, the way the traditional um, medical system works is often. Um, there's a symptom, there's a medication that treats that symptom, therefore the symptom goes away. But we don't often look at what it was that caused that symptom in the first place. And, and the problem is that then those things start to stack up. So, say, take statins, for example, because people talk uh, a lot about them and they get a lot, a lot of press. Um, there is some evidence for statins in, in some circumstances, uh, but a lot of people who take them probably don't need them or would do much better Uh, without them but say you've been prescribed a statin because you had a heart attack and because statins interfere with the production of um, q10 uh, which is a important molecule for mitochondrial function then you start to get something like muscle aches or muscle pains Um, so then you're prescribed something like ibuprofen which in the short term uh, reduces pain and reduces inflammation but in the long term it actually, can increase some of your inflammatory signaling, and then can cause you know further problems down the line. So maybe it causes problems with your blood sugar regulation. So you go on a, on a blood sugar medication. Main problems come from this, and the first one is that most of these medications that the people are being prescribed are often tested um, on their own. So so one one person takes one medication for for their disease, and it's usually because they have a very mild form of the disease, so they only need one medication. But then these things kind of tend to stack up, um, and it's very very rare that. You know, uh, so somebody comes in with twenty medications, and when I used to work on an elderly care ward, you know, you have these people coming in. They're in their eighties and nineties, and they take thirty or forty pills a day, and and none of those have been tested in combination. And actually, when you just start, you know, I, I used to work with this brilliant consultant who, you know, you know, I'd sit there and as a you know, parking the patient in hospital, I'd fill out this big drug chart, and then the the consultant would just come in and just cross it all off. And, you just see, and, and, and actually, and actually, you know, patients almost immediately feel, feel much better just because all this stuff, you know, there's a huge uh, tax on the liver, a huge tax, tax on the kidneys to try and metabolize all this stuff and get rid of it. Um, I can, you can kind of understand why, 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 why this happens because the doctor doesn't want the patient to feel bad, right? We want, we're like, I, I want the patient to feel well. And then the patient also wants me to help them feel well. So often, patients will go in and demand medications. You know, yeah, say, "What? Well, you know, I that. want, I want an antibiotic because I have a cold. You know, I don't feel very well. You know, or you know, what pill can I take to, to fix this?" So it definitely goes both ways. Um, but the, but the problem is that you don't, you didn't have heart attack because you suddenly had a statin deficiency. You know, no, <laughs> no nobody. Um, you know, nobody makes statins in the first place. It's not something that your body needs. And, and you know, there's maybe 10, 20, 30 years of stuff that's happened previously that, that, that's caused this problem. Um, so, but we can't really necessarily always roll back the clock. So then, so then we're just into symptom control and, and you know, and sort of symptom management. And then that's when you start to see all those issues where you know one medication might cause one symptom, where so you prescribe another medication, Um, and and it it sounds ridiculous, but I know you guys sort of I've seen it in you know in patients that come into hospital, and you say you see it in your clients. So I think it's actually I think it's actually fairly common, and and it's literally just you know it's a difference between trying to look at what's actually causing the disease in the first place, and maybe you know maybe you'll never figure it out, but. You know, it's the difference between actually, you know, looking and, and trying to, to work with some other things that maybe won't have, you know, any side effects. Because you know, walking doesn't really have any side effects. Um, <laughs> be- vegetables, uh, very few side effects. It, it, it's kind of a difference in just looking. You know, looking at the, it's the end of the pipe that you're looking at. Either you're looking at the beginning, um, which you know, a lot of functional, you know, medics are, are trying to do now, uh, or just looking at what's coming out the other end and, try and trying to deal with that. But like I say, you know, w- when you've got such a small amount of time to to see a patient you know an, an hour to go through their movement and sleep and stress and food and all that stuff doctors just don't have that luxury so uh, i think it's kind of it's on us um, or you know, on the on the patient as much to kind of educate themselves and, and make changes, and then you know if they struggle, then go and sort of have those conversations with the doctor. So it, so it's uh, I think it's part of it. You know, everybody needs to take responsibility.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree, and I've uh, I've been on a lot of courses with doctors, and and they've almost had to fight their corner where we we've been in the um, conferences and lectures and um they 've actually you know stood up and said, "Will you stop slating conventional medicine? You know I have eight minutes to help this person demanding yeah. demanding a pill from me Absolutely. Um, and, and and I completely um understood that I think my frustration is when um, I've got clients wanting to stop medications and they're doing the nutrition and the exercise. And, and I'm almost like, this is the last bit now. You don't, I don't think you need this medication, but um, they almost have to fight to, to, to come off it. And I know that it's, it's a slow process. It should be done gradually and it should only ever be done under the guidance of whoever prescribed that medication in the first place. But um, I had a uh, one client who literally just stopped thirty medications because her doctor wouldn't um, help her, and I was I was horrified. I said, like, "Please don't do that. That's 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 the worst thing ever." But she was adamant, and, and I nothing happened. Touch wood, but she just said, "I'm stopping everything." She's on pain medications, and she said, "I'm in pain, so what's the point?" And stopped everything, yeah. which you know it's scary, but it, it would just be nice to see them supporters more in their um, you know sort of bid to to take less, as it were, rather than. Um, take more which seems to be the case sometimes
2: yeah you'll you'll find that it just made me think of the fact that um and and it's very true that you know it's medications are started a lot more easily than they're stopped yeah um unless you were the one that prescribed that medication so as soon as you start to interfere with what another doctor did you know that's kind of that sacred ground there so it really takes a lot to 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 actually say well do you know what you probably don't need that um and but you know if there are doctors out there doing that kind of work, you know they should you know if they have the confidence and believe in uh, believe in what they're doing, then I think you know that, that they absolutely should do that. You should you know if you if you see the situation differently and you think that something should change, then that's absolutely you know within your right to do as as the patient's doctor. I was going to say something else, but I forgot what else.
1: <laughs> do you think the, there'll be any revision at any point as well of, with the, the saturated fat and cholesterol guidelines given that it's almost been done via media and publicly but it's still not being done at um nhs level so i telling. think
2: i think it will happen eventually uh, but there's still you know there's still conventionally trained dietitians telling us not to eat saturated fat uh, because of the problem with cholesterol Um, But then, you know, there was a study that came out, a big meta-analysis came out in the BMJ yesterday, uh, 41 prospective studies. So these are cohort studies where they basically look at people, what they eat out in the community and see what happens to them. So this, it doesn't prove causality. It can't say that saturated fats definitely don't or do cause heart disease. But, you know, in certain analyses, they're looking at over a million people and they found no association between saturated fat and heart disease, mortality, strokes, Type two diabetes, wow. um, and and a lot of people say that saturated fats are protective, but that this study didn't find it either. It just found that they're just they just neutral. You know, they just don't they don't do anything. So you know, it's not like but
1: butter isn't magical as yummy as it is. Um, <laughs> but but there's certainly no connection.
2: As far as best evidence we have, no connection between saturated fat and, and heart disease.
1: So hopefully that's going to change. That must change soon at some point. Yeah. Get filtered down if it's studies of that yeah. size in the BMJ.
2: Yeah, no, and, and it really should. And I think there's been some news articles and all this stuff coming out. But, but but the problem is that I kind of feel like the the saturated fat story and the eat more fat story is coming from like the low carb community and and, and people sort of promoting a low carb diet. Um, and the problem is that because of some of the the things that they that the low carb community is saying, which isn't necessarily true, that kind of gives that kind of muddies the waters because they say, well, they thought this and this was incorrect. Therefore, why should we trust them on saturated fat? And you can kind of, the traditional, you know, traditional thinkers can kind of use that as evidence against, say, the low-carb community. And so that one example that I had of that was, so Zoe Zoe, Zoe Harkin did a did a, a post a few months ago which basically talked about saturated fat and death rate, and using um, data from the MONICA study in, in Europe. This data is from about 10 years ago, I think. And, and if you look at death rate, just total to death rate and saturated fat intake, the more saturated fat you eat, uh, basically the lower the death rate or the longer you. And then she says, so the, the, the study, the seven countries that eat the most saturated fat, you know, have half the death rate of the countries that eat, of the seven countries that eat the most saturated fat. But if you actually look at this, the ones with the lowest saturated fat intake are Bosnia and Herzegovina, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Tajikistan, Moldova, Croatia, and Armenia. And the ones eating the most saturated fat are Austria, Finland, Belgium, mm-hmm. Iceland, <clears throat> Netherlands, Switzerland, and France. And you can't tell me that the only difference between those 40, you know, <laughs> two sets of countries is the it's amount five. of saturated fat. Right? <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: like, you immediately think about poverty, access to healthcare. Yeah. You know, saturated fat is expensive. The more saturated fat you eat, the, the healthier, you know, probably the wealthier you are. So the better access you have to certain things. So as, as soon as you see an analysis like that, you kind of think, well, some you know they're they're trying to make too much of the data that's there yeah and and then that kind of that kind of distorts the story so i kind of i kind of feel like there's fault on both sides of the argument
1: yeah definitely i think there's a lot when it comes to science it's it's even just learning how to interpret the science and, and see through studies is something that people need to get a bit more and this is myself included get more savvy with that and think well that doesn't you know, there's so many other confounding factors. You almost, in some ways, can't apply a lot of science to nutrition and exercise. We were just saying this um, yesterday. We were looking at the immune system, and I was thinking... The immune system is so unique in a way to every individual. It's really hard to say. I was looking at coffee and, you know, whether you have sort of different types of immune issues, whether it helps or hinders, and it's just yeah. it was just a minefield, and I gave up in the end.
2: <laughs> with, with, the, with the with the sports science in particular, so I did a podcast with Chris Kelly. We we're talking about earlier on his nourish balance thrive podcast, and we talked about um, carbs and using carbs to fuel exercise. And I did some digging through the research and. The quality of the science that goes on in sports, in sports science, particularly if you know whether you're taking some kind of supplement for before a science of particularly carbs or um, you know any other kind of supplement, or um, whether you know hydration, so whether you're drinking something with electrolytes or whatever, the quality of the science is so so poor that literally it means nothing. Like there's just there's almost nothing you can interpret from the data they've created. Just because the science, you know, just in general that field, the science is just very poor. The, the statistical analyses are very poor, um, you know. And then that really confuses people because if if uh, an abstract says, you know, it's on PubMed, it says, look, you know, having a hundred grams of carbs before you go for a run makes you run three percent faster. Then you know everybody starts, you know, smashing back LucasAid. Um yeah. But in reality, the study probably.
1: It's when I read a functional sports nutrition magazine, and they, they do a lot of studies in there. There was one on whether to train fasted or fed, and yeah. the outcome was it was it helped some people to be fasted, and it hindered others. <laughs> it was yeah. like, so the, the yeah. outcome is basically test it and see. But do you know
2: what? I feel like that's a really good. I think
1: I feel like that's a really good answer because most yeah. people will try and find the answer and say yeah. you should definitely
2: exercise fasted or you should definitely have breakfast first. Um, but actually for one person versus the next it might be really, really different. So, you know, if, if that's if that's the honest true answer, then I think that's the best that that's what you should tell people. But yeah. a lot of people wanna look for their kind of we did this study, we found this amazing effect, therefore you should listen to us.
1: No, we've, we've got used to just saying to people everything is a bit of a personal experiment mm. and that goes right down to... I'm even sort of saying that now with probiotics and things like that, that there are just so many, so many different factors influencing that I've said to people. Some probiotics I've prescribed to clients and they've worked wonders and some have made them feel horrendous. It's, yeah. it's, and I, I'd like to say that there's, there is a part of science and I'm looking at underlying issues, but a lot of it is, is trial and improvement with them. So.
2: Yeah. And um, the, the problem is it's boring. Because it
1: takes a lot of time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No one has any patience. <laughs> but that's the
0: key, isn't it? I mean, because the hard thing is, is when you're like selling a product, i.e., you know, with us when we run our online plans or our one-to-one services, for example, you, you don't market in a way where you say, well, over the course of 12 weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to try X, Y, and Z, see if that works for you, adapt accordingly, and then maybe try something different. Because that's yeah. not what people want. You want to They, they want results. So you say, across these 12 weeks, you're going to, lose body fat, feel amazing, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. But but the truth is that, that it isn't always as simple as that and that you do kind of need to think, oh, well, actually, that didn't work for you. Damn it. No worries. Well, here's another route we can take. Yeah, it's, it's worth, you know, if, if it took you 20 years to break it, you know,
2: you can't fix it in four weeks. It's yeah. just that, and and... And actually, you know, once people realize that, you know, it's an experiment and actually maybe it's quite interesting to try something new and and see the effect and, and, you know, actually maybe keep it going for four or six weeks and see whether it's beneficial or not. And it becomes a bit of a personal experiment. Um, and if you can get interested in that side of things, then I think you'll get you'll get better results rather than just get frustrated because it didn't happen really quickly.
1: Do you, do you have a guidance there? Because we get asked this a lot about, oh, how long before I get results? And I, I spoke to one functional medicine practitioner who said to me, he tells people a month for every year that you lived and ate suboptimally. Or <laughs> <laughs> so, like that was his message. So it's a year for some people. It's, you know, maybe even longer or a couple of months. Have you mm-hmm. got a, anything that you, how would you answer that question?
2: I Actually, um, I think that's a a really good answer. But but the the problem is that some people will, you know, they'll turn around much quicker than that. But I think you can certainly expect it to take one or two years of doing the right thing to really sort of feel back on, you know, 100% back on your game. You might, you know, you'll hopefully see smaller changes and just, you know, celebrate the smaller changes and the small improvements and and just use those as sort of milestones to the the bigger picture. I think that's the best way to, to approach it.
0: Tommy, um, we're going to wrap it up there, buddy. And We, could, right. we could talk for hours, and, and as we know, you can too. <laughs> uh, um, but we, we want to save some of this. Uh, I didn't think we were going to get through all the questions. Uh, I thought Keris was being rather optimistic, but <laughs> we had a good old stab at it. Absolutely awesome episode, buddy. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, but great. before we go, do you want to just tell our listeners where they can find... Can I just
1: ask one more question? No. I had one question on the list. How many peanut M&M's can I eat and still be healthy? More than
2: you currently eat. <laughs>
1: um, I like that and answer.
2: And that's my answer.
1: Good answer.
0: Good answer. We're good. Um, mate, where, where can people find um, a little bit more about you and your country music?
2: <laughs> so my country music has taken a bit of a back seat um, <laughs> recently, mainly because of my PhD work. So people can people can go to my website, uh, which is drragnar.com, which is D-R-R-A-G-N-A-R.com. And the reason I have a very strange website name is because my middle name is Ragnar, in case anybody's asking. Um, I'm also at DrRagnar on Twitter, although I'm not very good at Twitter. And I'm facebook.com slash DrRagnar. On my website, you can find links to my podcast, the Eat Better podcast, which I do with Chloe Archard. Um, I also write for Primal Eye magazine, um, and breaking muscle, I've done a few articles for Breaking Muscle and Breaking Muscle UK. So you can go to breakingmuscle.com and find my articles there. Um, and yeah, people are very welcome to contact me through any of those portals and uh, contact you with any questions or anything we can cover in the future. If they think I'm wrong about anything, I love uh, you know I love people telling me I'm wrong so I can learn more. I kind of feel like that's the best way to to move forward. So any of that um, would be great.
1: That alone is a very admirable thing to yeah. say, because normally everyone wants to be just always seen as right all the time. So. I have been wrong
2: many times in my life. Now that I've realized you're recording this, I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, I think it's it's e- evolution of knowledge, very important. Absolutely. Um, and I
2: think I think we need, you know, people need to realise that the people they're seeking advice from don't necessarily always know the answer, or sometimes they think they know the answer and it's not correct. Um, and people who are giving advice should be able to admit when they're wrong, which some of them are, and some of them aren't, um, in, particularly in the payload community. I think there's kind of a split down the middle.
0: I actually read a, um, a great quote on uh, Facebook the other day by uh, a well-known strength coach. And he said, if you don't look back at what you were doing 10 years ago and don't do a face palm." then like, like <laughs> yeah. you, you seriously need to up your game and I thought it's so true like yeah. it is constantly evolving like things are constantly changing and you kind of just need to move with the times you know some things are just what they are but I, I do think that there's so much room for more research more science more improvement etc oh ab- absolutely you know if we knew it all already then
2: podcasts like this wouldn't be you know as, as popular as they are because you know we know it all
0: right well, yeah, exactly <laughs>
1: But we'll get you back on, Definitely, We did have uh, – we planned to talk about training, and obviously I mentioned to you I'd l- I'd love to get you to do a focus episode on things like heart disease, type 2 diabetes as well, so sure. uh, listeners can tune in. So we will get you back if you have time. Absolutely. Uh, in amongst all your studying, and, yeah, so people can send questions in. Yeah,
0: right. absolutely. And, and Tommy, uh, any events coming up, buddy? I understand you're getting the one and only Chris Cresser over to these shores.
2: Yeah, so – This is mainly so. Chris Kresser is coming on the thirty first of October, the first of November. So on the thirty first, he's doing like a a general sort of overview of his of of how to personalize Paleo to your various
1: ailments. So that's a full day thing. And then on the Sunday, he's doing he's doing uh, something called he's talking about the Adapt Method, which is which
2: is part of his new and upcoming like practitioner uh, training course for functional functional medics. You can get tickets from Re hyphen findhealth.com um, and uh, all the details are on there. This is kind of, that so that website has been set up and run by Chris Armstrong who runs Primal Docs, so he's done a lot of the work there, and actually Chloe Archard who runs PaleoBritain.co.uk uh, she's, she's done all the sort of venue hiring and, and, and getting sponsors and, and things like that, so I've just done a little bit of admin, so it's basically their project and I've sort of been helping them out on it. But on the same days... Is Health Unplugged in London, which is the UK's sort of first paleo conference. Um, so I will actually be talking there. So sadly, I can't go and see Chris Cresser. Um, <laughs> so people are spoiled for choice, really, and they can sort of see what, what 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 sort of suits them. But that weekend, there's a huge amount going down in the UK. Um, and I just think that's really great for us and for people learning more and you know having this huge amount of knowledge sort of available. To everybody. So it's, it's
1: like a paleo really, festival. You, yeah, was. absolutely.
2: <laughs> I, I think we should. I think we should have just created one, you Event. know, paleo yeah. knowledge fest somewhere. Um, and maybe, maybe in the future, that's that's something that will happen. I, I really <laughs> hope so all of
1: camping so, caves got to be held near caves.
0: Well, <laughs> you might have shot yourself in the foot here, mate. Everyone <laughs> might go to Cresses now, and you will be like, "Where is everyone?"
1: Yeah, I know, but. Uh, Health Unplugged, there's also, I think Jimmy Moore is going to be there,
2: so, oh. you know, depending on, depending on your, uh, your flavor, yeah. Favorite, yeah. your favorite flavor of experts, um, I think, you know, the functional, the functional medical side, people might go for Chris Kresser and, and you know, people going for, um, you know, some other stuff, but, you know, there's a huge amount of Health Unplugged, great guys speaking, so, yeah. Um, I'm kind of, oh, I'm and I'm sad I won't be there.
1: And I asked, we're, we're on the list, we've got our tickets, but yeah, just we, we can maybe, did their Health Unplugged put theirs up as a, um, afterwards as seminars that you can download, or the webinars? Um, that's,
2: that's a good question, uh, I'm not sure, Daryl Edwards, the fitness explorer, uh, as people know him, is running it, and I, I'm not sure what his plans are, but um, if people are going to one and not the other, um, they can... they they could ask him and see what what his plans for that are I'm not sure
0: awesome awesome thank
1: you so much
0: yeah it's been it's been amazing buddy thank you for giving up your time and uh, yeah it'd be be amazing to have you back on again for sure awesome buddy well thanks once again thank you everybody for listening amazing episode there Uh, lots of valuable information guys if you love the episode of course share it if you haven't left a review yet please please do so it means a hell of a lot to us that's how we learn and we can kind of get a sense of direction of where we go with these podcasts Um, and if you subscribe to the podcast as well it'll just automatically come into your podcast app on your phone which is easy Um, guys enjoy the rest of the day and we will see you in episode number 57 see you later and tara tommy Bye. bye bye guys